0: Welcome back, dear listeners. This is Charlotte again, Creative and Technical Director at Evidence for Faith. You are about to listen to the fifth lesson in our series titled, Science in the Bible. So in this lesson, Michael will be diving into geology. It's all about molten rock, the mantle, the crust, isostasy, and some other fun stuff. So as always, you can find the video version, PowerPoint, worksheet, and other resources at our website, evidenceforfaith.org. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org. You can also directly support this broadcast and help us keep it free by donating at evidenceforfaith.org slash give. And with that, here's Michael Lane in geology. <music>
1: Hello friends, welcome to Evidence for Faith, and I'm your host, Michael Lane. Glad you joined me today for this, because this is a really fascinating and really uh, hard uh, series we're going to be doing today, Hard Lesson, because this is about geology, you know, rocks. There's somewhere in there, there's a pun, don't dig too hard, but there, there is a joke in there. But anyway, we're going to be talking about geology and the Bible. Um, i got to tell you, first of all, just what recently just happened. I was talking to a college student, Christian Gale, who uh, told me that she is actually uh, majoring at her Christian college in Religious Studies. And she said that she was disturbed by something, so she reached out to me on this, and she said, my uh, my professor, I have him for like I've had him for five classes, and still have him now for next year, some more classes again. But she said he keeps saying that the Old Testament is a book of myths. Now he believes in the New Testament. He doesn't say that's myth, but he says, the Old Testament is myths. Thus, you can't rely on it. It's full of all sorts of errors and stuff. So he says, don't even go there thinking that this is literal or that this is real, that these people were real or anything. And she says, what do you think about this? I My first response was, maybe you need to go to a different college. Um, but how often people come up with this? and they think that science and the Bible are so contradictory, they think that the Bible's a book of myth or a book of fairy tales. It is not. This stuff is real. Um, those who have come with me on Israel trips, or if you've been to Israel trips on your own, you have seen these places are real. These, these characters, there's evidence of these characters and stuff. Well, that's why we do Evidence for Faith. Evidence for Faith is to show people reasons to believe. that You just don't have to rely upon faith. Um, well, that's great, there's nothing wrong with that, but God has given us so much evidence outside of that to show i mean part of his whole creation was to show to us that he is real that he is there and he put us in this beautiful painting of life all around us well today we're going to be taking a look at another branch of science that God has created, because God is the creator of all things. Before him, there was nothing, and then, don't ask me to explain it, no one can, but then he created things out of nothing. And one thing he did was he created things pertaining to geology, what we call geology today. And that's what we're going to focus on. We're going to be talking about certain aspects of geology. Now, we're not doing a whole geology course. Oh, my gosh, there'd be too much stuff there. Um, But we're going to be doing, as we're doing in the series, we're going to take what? what science from different subject areas are in the Bible because the Bible is not a science textbook. I mean, we we know that. It's not a science textbook. It never claims to be a science textbook. But God, who is creating things and communicating to us, speaking to us and stuff, at times says something based upon a scientific principle that he designed. And if he has done this with little bits of science that you find scattered throughout here, they're always going to be true. Now, as we have seen in previous lessons, sometimes science takes a while to catch up to the Bible. Science disagrees with the Bible in certain certain aspects, but it seems like as you keep as science keeps aging, it gets a little smarter and it catches up with what the Bible said all along. And you're going to see that more as this series continues with astronomy and human biology and psychology, etc. We're going to see some more of these things. but this is a remarkable book and it's real. it's real. So, The Bible does not contain copious amounts of geologic facts. There's not a whole lot of geology in here, but as we have seen, there are pieces in here of different branches of science, and geology is also one of these. And what geology is found in the Bible is going to ring truth. It's going to be true because God is truth. So he speaks to us sometimes using geology facts, and let's examine those as we go through this. So the first one. Very easy one, Um, titling this section here, Molten Rock Under the Earth's Crust. Molten Rock Under the Earth's Crust. Now, those of you who are familiar with volcanoes and have a fascination with them and stuff, like lava and magma, um, yeah, that kind of stuff. Under the Earth's Crust, that's what we're talking about. Now, got to go back and think now for a second. I'm going to sort of set you up for something and, and let you see what the ancients saw. In ancient times, like when you go to ancient Israel, some of my favorite places to go, there are still wells that date back to the Old Testament period. Even to to as far back as Abraham and Jacob, you can find wells in certain places still there. But have you ever thought about this? As people in ancient times looking for water, they would dig wells, and some of these wells are over 100 feet down. I mean, they're several, several meters in depth. As they would dig these wells and reach groundwater down there and then they pull it up, the groundwater was cool and refreshing. Um, you find wells mentioned throughout the Bible, as, and these wells having cool, refreshing water um, as they're digging at the earth's surface, at the crust, and they dig down into this. So they must have thought that, wow, you go deeper into the earth, it gets sort of cool, because the water's cool. Not only that, if you get a chance to go to caves, now there's many caves and cave systems in Israel, but there's also cave systems all over the world. I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to go to Mammoth Cave uh, National Park in Kentucky. That is a phenomenal place, I've been there many times. And as you go in there, it gets a little cool in there. The temperature inside the cave year-round is 54 degrees Fahrenheit, 12 degrees Celsius. I mean, it's a little chilly in there. You got to go in wearing like a a sweatshirt or a a light jacket or something because it gets cold as you go into these caves. Or if you stand at the mouth of the cave, you feel cool air coming out as it, as it um, is flowing out of the cave. So people used to think, and rightly so, going under the crust of the earth as you go down deeper, it gets cooler. So that was sort of something that the ancients ought to caught. They all caught this. And even today, people a lot of times, you know, you get into a cave or if you have a basement at home, uh, it's oftentimes cooler down there closer, or the deeper you go, it gets seeming to be cooler. But that's not always the case. In some locations around the world, it gets hot. And, or in some cases, you have water and stuff coming up to the surface, and it is very hot. On the crust of the earth, um, you can get very, very high temperatures of water in certain hot springs and stuff, um, to the point that the water even boils. Um, if you go to certain places like Yellowstone National Park, uh, Hot Springs, Arkansas, I, I mean, they're all over there. Every, every continent has places where there's, uh, there's hot water coming all the way up to the surface, where... You know in ancients we're just talking about the cool coolness of the wells being down in the earth well sometimes hot water is at the surface of the earth seems to be contradictory here but that's the way it is set up there's a place even called deception island off antarctica yes antarctica that people go to and actually you can sit there snow all around and the water Uh, you can sit down in the water in your swimsuit and it is hot and it's because there are these um underground springs of of the molten earth coming up closer to the surface and so it heats the water and we do see these places all over the world so sort of a question that i'm sure the ancients often asked why are some places it's cool and other places in the earth's crust it's hot well that has to do with the way the crust of the earth is set up now this is actually don't don't let me lose you here this actually pertains to the bible and the bible has something to say about this and it explains a little bit on this you see the earth according to scientists the earth believe uh or they they believe that the earth is composed of distinct layers the most uh outer part the part that we see you walk look out a window or take a walk down the road the part you see there that you're walking on is called the earth's crust and it's actually the thinnest of all of the layers of the earth Uh, Almost every geology book you're gonna pick up or earth science textbook or something, it's gonna give you um, like a thickness, an average thickness. And it can be, in some cases, it comes right to the surface, less than a kilometer uh, to the the surface. Um, So up into the crust, it can be very, very hot, molten rock coming up like that. Or or the crust can be, in some cases, they estimate the crust is about 80 kilometers. That's roughly 49 and a half miles. 80 kilometers thick this crust this thinnest layer 49 miles wow that's pretty thick but actually that's thin when you compare it to the whole earth so even the oceans fit on and are part of the earth's crust don't think when I say the crust we're just talking about the surface area we're talking about this whole top layer including the oceans so the oceans have the ocean floor the ocean floor is part of this thin crust that's on the top so that's the first layer that you come to then after you go through the crust, and as far as I'm aware, no, no uh, group of geologists have drilled all the way through here, though volcanoes and stuff spurt up through it. But scientists call this next layer, which is the thickest layer, they believe, and this one's called the mantle. Now the mantle is underneath the crust, in some places it comes very close to the surface in other places it's miles beyond but this is a very very hot area the mantle is made up of molten rock we call this magma it's mostly composed of liquid iron and silica and magnesium but it's uh it's molten it's it's liquid now i want you to try and stay with me on this because the crust sits on top underneath that the solid stuff on top underneath is a sea basically of molten iron and it's very thick it's it's hundreds of miles thick and so it's the next layer and as you keep going down you come to other layers well i just want to focus on these top two the mantle itself uh, before we get down to the solid core we're not going there but the mantle of the liquid hot rock and then the crust floating like on top of it sitting there and at times like I say the mantle um, can actually seep up into the crust through what's called dikes or sills and or volcanoes and it breaks through and you can see the molten rock coming up. The magma coming up, when it reaches the surface, we call it lava. And Hawaii is very famous for this, and there's other places around the world where you can see this lava um, flowing around. And some people, I have big, gigantic chunks of lava that people have given me from Hawaii, um, huge pieces of uh, igneous rock, and from this molten magma that came up and then cooled. Now, now that we've got this established, what does the Bible state about this scientific fact that we have the crust floating on a sea of molten rock now even though the ancients knew that you go down to get cool water you dig down into the earth the ancients knew this ancient israelis knew this the egyptians knew this babylonians they all knew this you could make a well you go down you usually hit cool water so why do we see it that um, that we find the bible making a statement which we're going to come to in a second about being under the ground being extremely hot well we're going to catch this we're going to bring this up because the verse we're talking about is in job chapter 28 verse 5. now job is the oldest book considered by all experts to be in the bible it's the oldest one and here's what it says out of the english standard version a word for word translation it says this as for the earth Out of it comes bread, but underneath it is turned up as by fire, fire, heat, hot, it is molten. This is describing, I believe, very, very clearly that underneath the crust of the earth, the earth as it talks about where the bread is, that's the crust. What's underneath the crust, molten, it's very hot. That's exactly what geology books and stuff tell us to this day. It's in there, earth science books and stuff. The layers of the earth. Google it. Look and you'll see that the outer part of the earth has a crust to it. Underneath is molten and in the mantle layer. This is exactly what the Bible says in the oldest book of the Old Testament, it actually says this. I just find that to be the most fascinating thing, which leads us into something, a different type of, of topic here, But um, and it has to do with this floating crust up on top of the mantle, and it has to do with a theory that's called iso- um, isostasy. Isostasy is probably something a lot of people have never heard of, unless I never heard of it until I took a geology course back in college. Um, when I was in college, back <laughs> to some people like when the Earth was cooling. Um, That was a long time ago. But in geology, we covered this and stuff, and I never thought much of it after that. But um, basically, what it has to do with, the theory of isostasy has to do with the crust of the Earth floating on molten rock or magma underneath it. Just what we described. Just what we described. The crust of the Earth floating, because it's solid, floating on a liquid molten rock layer called the mantle. Now, isostasy has to do with balance. And what it is, they they have found out and as I told you, the Um, The thickness of the crust varies in different places from anywhere from like less than a kilometer to 80 kilometers. So it has quite a bit of variance, but why does it vary? Well, scientists wondered about this and they came up with this theory that in places like where it goes up really high, the crust is really super thick like where the Himalayas are or the Alps or the, the Andes Mountains, the Rocky Mountains, the crust, if it's that high, the crust must be thicker underneath to support all that weight since it's floating. Sort of, it's, it's got to have a large deep part floating into the molten uh, mantle underneath. Uh, now, in places that it's not really high, say like the Midwest, um, or the floor of the oceans, the Atlantic or the Pacific or Indian Ocean, the floors there, the crust isn't as thick because it's, um, it's much thinner there, there's not as much mass above it, so it doesn't have to be quite as thick. So in some areas it's thicker, in some areas it's thinner, and this whole thing is being balanced because it's floating on molten rock, on molten iron, this mantle. So it's floating on this, so it has to be balanced. And that it all is balanced like that is what we call the theory of isostasy. So scientists believe that this whole thing, having the crust being balanced on liquid um, is how the earth is actually set up. And the thing is, this is in the Bible also. You see, the key to isostasy is the word balance. The mantle under the crust is molten and fluid. The crust is solid and it floats in a balanced way. That's how this all works. And it is accomplished, now scientists aren't all in agreement on how this is done. There's three that I'm aware of major theories about how this all works, but the general theme is pretty much the same. That the higher the, the parts of the crust are, the deeper it penetrates into the mantle. Sort of just makes sense. The thinner um, crust doesn't need as deep of a base. So. Isosiasi deals with balancing on the crust of the mantle. Now, I keep saying this over and over, and you might be saying, why does he keep repeating that isostasy deals with balance uh, of the crust on the mantle? It's because that's what this theory is, and this is in the Bible. Now, where did this theory come from, first of all? Before we get into the Bible aspect, the theory of istastasy, according to my textbooks and stuff, dates back into the mid-1800s. Two different scientists, I don't think they were working together, but two different scientists sort of came up with the same idea. Sir George Beidel Airy was one, and the other one was uh, John Henry Pratt, who was the other scientist. Now, um, today, scientists don't know exactly how this all works out. Like I say, there's different theories on it, but this is how they came up with with, uh, or why they came up with this theory. And nearly all scientists today, nearly all scientists I'm aware of, every geologist I've ever talked to or ever sat in on a class on, they all agree that isostasy, this balancing act on the mantle, does exist. Now, with that, I got to tell you a fun story. Story time! Story time. Pull up a bowl of popcorn, get a drink, uh, hot chocolate, whatever. Push your chair aside, sit on the carpet. Whatever. Whatever floats your boat here. Oh, floats your boat. Sounds like a Anyway, back in 1999, I was doing a Bible study on the book of Isaiah. Now, forget everything I've just said at this point, um, dealing with the science thing. Let me just tell you about this fun story. I was sitting and studying the book of Isaiah. And as I do a Bible study, uh, I do different types of Bible studies. Matter of fact, I teach different styles of Bible study, different methods. And on this one, I was going verse by verse and examining the uh, the ancient Hebrew in each one of the verses as I was going through it. So this took me over a year of going through Isaiah like this because Isaiah is not no short book; it's a long book. But I was in 1999 doing this series and uh, this study, and I came to a verse that. Um, I'm gonna show you right now, out of the English Standard Version, I'm gonna show you this verse that hit me. I was in chapter 40 of the book of Isaiah, verse 12. This is what it says. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in a balance? Now, that's the verse. As I was reading this, I stopped and I contemplated for a moment. Wow, what's the key words that I just came across here? I started looking at these. I saw measured. I saw measure, two different words. I saw weighed. I saw mountains, scales, balance. And immediately as I'm sitting there, I just thought back, this sounds a lot like the theory of isostasy. So I reached over, I was sitting in my study, I reached over and I grabbed my old geology book, Principles of Geology, and I pulled this out and I looked up isostasy and I read it again. And then I pulled up some other geology books I have and earth science books and I started reading this and the more I read the more excited I got as I started then going in and looking at the actual Hebrew words that are being described here my excitement started to overflow I jumped up out of my chair I still remember this to this day jumping up out of my chair pacing back and forth talking aloud my gosh the theory of I is in the Bible oh my lands, this is just amazing now, so here we are let me just show you from those key words alone what we're talking about now, we, we've, we've already learned what the theory of isostasy is. Dealing with balancing of the crust on liquid sea and stuff. So it's balancing. Now, the first word that comes across here is the word measured. In Hebrew, that's madad, which is a verb. And it means to literally measure or to survey something. So this verse is talking about something being measured. And it's talking about the earth. It's talking about the earth being measured and or surveyed. Then it comes to another word. Very similar in English, the word measure, but in, in Hebrew, it's the word uh, shalish. And shalish is a noun. It's not a verb. It's a noun, which means to use a balance to measure something. So we see this in verse. Then it uses the word weighed. Weighed is the Hebrew word uh, shakal, which is a verb meaning to suspend on a balance, like an old tri beam balance or something, or a double beam balance. You put something on the weights and you get it to, to weigh out like they used to do in ancient times. And even in labs, we still do this kind of thing today. If you don't have a digital balance, you still use the old-fashioned type with putting grams on one side. You have the exact same word for using a balance to measure something being describing, used here to describe the earth. Then it uses the word scales, pellets. That's a noun also. A noun for actually doing a balancing um, or a, a weighing it's it's the, the device is what it is it's not the noun for weighing it's the actual balance or uh, the scale that you use like what they would use to measure it actually has that word and then it actually says again the word balance uh, mozen um, that's a Hebrew word which is another noun for a pair of scales or balances something is being balanced now you take these words in the hebrew um, or in the english and or the hebrew thing here and you take a look at what these words are saying and what's going on it's talking about the earth and the earth having sections being weighed in a balance What's isostasy? Istostasy has to do with the same thing. Isaiah appears to be writing about this theory that today, in modern science, we call isostasy. And I was like, okay, okay, Michael, calm down, calm down. I actually, I went to work um, I was working at a Christian camp at the time, right there, and I just started. And I remember going up and talking to two people up in the office, telling them what I just discovered. And they're like, um, I never heard of isostasy. So I had to explain isostasy to them. And as I explained it, they said, wow, that's what this verse seems to be talking about. I said, exactly. So I went back. That evening, I went back home and I got to my my study and I started pulling out commentaries and stuff and reading different commentaries. Uh, Now, remember, a commentary is just uh, one or two um, biblical scholars or uh, pastors or whatever giving you their opinion of what the verses are. And I have many commentaries, as you can see. I have uh, quite a few. Um, Some are uh, one author, some are very uh, numerous. we have Warren Weersby set here. This is Matthew Poole, one of my favorites. Um, then you get some that are, that are different, um, you know, numerous people doing them. And I started pulling many of my commentaries out, looking up this verse, and they too, some of them, actually quite a few Bible scholars, particularly ones that were very, very uh, understanding and knowledgeable of, of the ancient language of Hebrew, They also said in their commentaries about isostasy. Let me give you an example for one. The John MacArthur commentary. Now, this one came out after my discovery on this because this was in 20, or I'm sorry, in 1999. Uh, John MacArthur's one-volume commentary. I have a copy of it right here. um, His one-volume commentary, it says this concerning this verse. Let me quote it to you right out of here. And it says, quote, God alone has power to create the physical universe and the earth in perfect balance weighing mountains and seas perfectly, so that the earth moves perfectly in space. This matter of the amazing balance of our planet is called the science of Unquote, And he's not the only one who, who mentioned this out of different commentaries that I came across. This is something that is I'm not the only one who came up you know, and saw this. A lot of people have seen this. A lot of Bible scholars who are familiar with the geology, uh, science of geology, identify this also as isostasy. I don't think they're wrong because the words that are used here are the same things that you find from the Bible you find in a geology book. It's describing the same features. I just find this absolutely amazing. Did you? I, I mean... Okay, you might've got too excited, have to jump up and down and stuff like I did. I understand that. So after you take a deep breath, now let's calm down and let's go to another branch of geology that is, is really interesting. And you know what? I've got a story for that one too. <clears throat> yes, my whole life is full of stories. Now in this one, we're gonna talk about the topic here. And this is, this is a very controversial thing today. Flat earth or sphere. Is the earth flat, or is it a sphere? And believe it or not, um, since ancient times, there have been many people who thought the earth was flat. Others who thought, even from ancient times, thought it was a sphere. Um, This goes on and on. And even to this day, even with NASA and sending astronauts uh, to the moon and sending satellites out into outer space and photographing the earth, a lot of people still disagree that the earth is a sphere, that it's actually flat. Well, you know the controversy. Particularly if you watch the news or even sports events because sometimes uh, some celebrities are jumping all over this flat earth thing, supporting it. Well, does the Bible have something to say on this? Yes. But let me tell you the story first. This happened about a year ago. I had a college student. Um, it was a young lady came up to me. And uh, she says, Michael, she, she was reaching out to me. She says, I, I want your opinion on something. Well, I'll give you my opinion. It doesn't, might not mean anything, but I'll give you my opinion. She says, my family, particularly my dad, and my dad is somebody very, very... Um, uh, influential in our church you know, like he's uh, I think he said he was like an associate pastor or something but anyway um, Christian people he says we're Christians my dad's a Christian um, I'm a Christian etc etc and I said hey it's great to know but what's your question she says we all believe that the earth is flat and she says I take a lot of flack from people on this a lot of people make fun of me and stuff but I am convinced that the earth is flat and as a Christian it makes me even more believing that the earth is flat I said, okay, so what are you asking me? She says, I want to know your opinion. And as we continued this, I mean, I know that many critics, many non-believers of the Bible often claim that the Bible makes serious errors in science and that the Bible declares the earth flat. She actually stated that also. She says, I'm using the Bible to support my theory, uh, this idea that the earth is flat. And as I said, there's many celebrities today, sports figures and, and singers and stuff that have jumped on this bandwagon too. And I said to her, I said, well, to be honest, there has always been civilizations that have been around that, who have taught and believe that the earth is flat. And many people still believe that, though probably not as many today as there were Um, 2000 years ago, but that's the way it was. Like I say, celebrities have been jumping on this and trying to get people to support their ideas. I've even seen people being interviewed on CNN in the past about this idea and stuff. But anyway, I asked her, I said, where do you get the idea from the Bible supporting this? Now, I had an idea where she was going, but I I wanted her to, to tell me here how she came to this conclusion how her family and her dad and she said her dad often talks on this with groups and stuff i said where in the bible is he using and are you using information for this flat earth theory and as in most cases that have always happened she says it's found in three verses i said can you tell me what the verses are she said yeah it's and she had her bible she was prepared for this she said uh psalm 75 3 uh psalm um, 104, verse 5, and then the last one is Revelation, chapter 7, verse 1. She says, these three places tells us, uh, God is telling us that the earth is flat. I want your opinion on this. I said, okay, let's take a look at what your Bible says. Well, she had a King James Version. Uh, nothing wrong with King James, but since she was using that, I'll, I'll go with that here. It says in King James Version, chapter 75, verse 3 of Psalm The book of Psalms it says the earth and all its inhabitants thereof are dissolved I bear up the pillars of it and she says right here it says the earth is suspended it's bore up on pillars supporting it and I said okay so you've taken a verse here verse 3 I said now whenever you're gonna do a good Bible study and this is just a good tip for everybody in any type of Bible study you do I said What is the opening paragraph? Um, or the, not the opening, the opening sentence of the paragraph this verse is found in. Because to be honest with you, as you look at this, this is in the middle of a paragraph in the ancient manuscripts. So I pulled out a King or uh, New American Standard Bible because they actually uh, show where paragraphs begin um, by uh, bold printing the number of the verse. If you have a New American Standard, you never noticed this, open it up, you'll see certain verses are in bold print, the numbers. Um, Some publishers will even make the first word in bold print to make people understand that this is starting a new paragraph. Or if you have an interlinear Bible, you can pull out an interlinear Bible. And um, you will see it's set up as the paragraph sections and stuff are all set up inside of these. So I said, what you need to do is, first of all, I said, find out and discover that this, and you will, and we did right there, that this is in the middle of a paragraph. And I said, now, since it's in the middle of a paragraph, you're a college student, um, what is the opening sentence of a paragraph called? And she says, that's the thesis sentence. I said, exactly. So it's the thesis sentence. What does that mean? She says, that means every sentence following pertains to that first opening sentence that thesis statement, the first sentence of a paragraph. I said, you're absolutely correct. And I said, what's it talking about? So I had her read that verse and the entire paragraph. And that's where things started to change. Because though people use this verse as a major piece of evidence that the earth is sitting on pillars. I mean, come on, the ancient Egyptians used to think that the earth sat on the back of a turtle. The Greeks had Atlas holding it up, you know, and stuff. Um, but the thing is that's not what's really being talked about here. And when you read the whole paragraph, particularly the opening sentence, the thesis sentence of the paragraph, you're going to see, this is not supporting a flat earth theory, not so ever. I told her what you're, what you're coming up with. Your conclusion is incorrect because the opening sentence dictates what everything follows, and that's not what this is talking about. In this case, the thesis sentence is all about giving thanks to God for what? Control of the earth, control of the world. Now, he uses the word pillars here, and that's correct. Pillars does appear right in there. And in verse 3, you see this, but what it is, it's a metaphor and if you study other ancient writings and stuff you'll see pillars are used uh, the word pillar is used often as a metaphor for what the boundaries of the earth it doesn't mean literal pillars it's an ancient metaphor used frequently so that is not what this is talking about and you get the clue from this from the thesis sentence the thesis sentence is talking about how god controls the world and that he has uh, the foundations and uh, or the, the the boundaries in control. Everything is in control. God is in control. So this verse is actually stating that the Lord is in control, shoring up what? What's this uh, this paragraph talking about? Moral order talking about the physical features and the civilization, stopping them from collapsing. God is in control of how bad everything ever gets. God is still in control. That's what it's talking about. It's not talking about, God's not telling us that the earth is literally flat. It's a metaphor. She goes, oh, okay, I see that now. She says, yeah, I was taking the verse out of context because I was just using a verse by itself, not inside, or it was inside a paragraph, but not containing the whole paragraph and looking what the topic was. She says, I get that. I never thought of that before. She says, okay, but what, well, what about the next verse? I said, well, what's the next one? She says Psalm 104, verse 5. Again, we're out of the King James Version, and it reads this. This is what we read in our Bible. You who laid the foundations of the earth so that it should not be moved forever. She says right there, it says foundations. If we're talking about foundations, it can't be a sphere. It's talking about something being flat, being supported as a foundation. And as we sat there, she says also, as we're looking through our books and stuff, she says this is the opening sentence of a paragraph. This is the thesis sentence. So I'm not taking it out of context. I said, well... Actually, you are correct. This is the beginning of a paragraph. It is the start of a paragraph. It is a thesis sentence, so everything following pertains to this. But um, this this whole paragraph, when you read the paragraph, the whole paragraph is talking about God's greatness and his control over his creation. It's talking about God creating the earth. Not about how he is supporting it, it's mentioning how great he is by his power display of creating the earth. And if you go back and you look at Genesis chapter 1, you're going to see what this is talking about. Because we see the word foundations used there too. And it's talking about in this paragraph, the Genesis account, God creating the world. And what did we see? There was, it says at the beginning beginning part of the book of Genesis chapter 1, that the earth had water and underneath was foundation. And all of a sudden the foundations came up and we had a solid earth underneath. But the oceans were sitting above it somehow. There was uh, this liquid foundation and then below Uh, or a liquid substance, and below that was the foundation the liquid was sitting on. That's what this is talking about. It's not not talking about a flat earth. It's talking about the days of creation and how great God is in the way he did things. The foundations were waiting for God to separate the waters from it. This does not mean the earth is flat at all. So she says, okay, I get this. I understand that. She says, that's good. But then she says, well, the strongest argument is the one I say for last. And I said, Revelation? She says, yeah. I said, let's take a look at that one. Revelation, chapter 7, verse 1. And it reads, And after these things, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor the sea, nor on any tree. She says, right there the four corners. If you have four corners, you're suspending. It's like the four uh, parts of a floor with pillars underneath. That's what she said this is talking about. And she says, this is the first verse of this chapter, so I guess this is probably the thesis sentence. And I looked it up, and uh, my interlinear and New American Standard said, yes, you're correct. This is the thesis sentence. You are right, but that is not what this is talking about. Um, Revelation 7.1 is the thesis sentence. Yes. The words here that she's focusing on, four corners of the earth. Guess what? This is a very, very common metaphor used in ancient times. Matter of fact, I've heard people even use that to this day talking about the four corners of the earth it's not talking about four little corners it's talking about the four points of the compass north south east and west now the compasses weren't invented until um, the um, time during the prophets of the old testament in china but the thing is they still knew there was a north south east and west and the way that they referred to this and they still do you still hear it occasionally today is they'll refer to the four points or, or of the four corners or four points of the earth that's what it is. It has nothing to do. There's no way referring to a literal four corner here. It's a metaphor for talking about describing directions, that it's covering the whole Earth from the, from the north to the south, from the east to the west. How many times do we use that? And she says, yeah, everybody uses that frequently. I said, there you go. But I said, now you understand your three, your three arguments now and how they don't really support this flat Earth. She says, yeah, I'm beginning to see that. I said, but did you know that the Bible actually teaches that there is a a spherical earth? She says, where? I said, there's a couple places. One, in Proverbs chapter 8, verse 27. Now, we're going to go back to the English Standard Version, word-for-word translation. It reads this. When he established, the he is God, of course. When he established the heavens, I was there, and he drew a circle on the face of the deep. Now, this is talking about the earth and having to do with God creating things, and this is the earth, but to see the word is a circle. That's not the only place, let's move to the next one. This is Isaiah chapter 40, verse 22. It says, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth here again we have the same phrase being used the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshopper who stretches out the heavens like a curtain spreads them like a tent to dwell in so here we have the same word being used basically two times in the same context now the Hebrew word here is the word chung, Chung, which literally means circle or sphere is what the word means not flat it, it's that's not what it means at all And, um, again, if we go back to John MacArthur in his commentary, or (laughs) a host of other commentaries on this, they point out to you that what's being described here, the word circle is applicable to the spherical form of the earth. That's what this is. The the Bible is actually saying the earth is not flat, it's a spherical structure. And there's support for that right there in our Bibles. How about that one? She goes, wow, no one's ever showed me that before. So I'm glad you came so we could talk about this. Well, let's go to another topic now in geology that the Bible has some things to say about. Uh, this one is very controversial. This is where we're gonna have some fun. Fossils. Oh yes, fossils. Let's talk about fossils for a minute. Ah uh, Probably almost all of you have probably been to a natural history museum like in New York or Chicago's uh, Field Museum or maybe one in in London or something. Um, You see a lot of fossils. Matter of fact, if you go in certain areas, even maybe in your backyard, you can find fossils. Look in your driveway. I remember my dad used to order limestone rock um, to fill in our driveway every uh, few years. and As soon as the rock would come, it was limestone, broken up limestone. I would go out there with my friends and with a magnifying glass, we'd start looking for little fossils and stuff, and we would find small little fossils and things all over inside there. So fossils are around, there's no question about it. Um, So what are fossils? Well, fossils, look in any geology book or earth science book, they're going to tell you. Fossils are are believed to be organisms. Well, they are. They're organisms that died, yet their tissues have been replaced with minerals, uh, preserving their shape and their structure. That's like almost a direct quote out of one of my uh, earth science books. so, then there's beautiful fossils. I have a couple here, just absolutely gorgeous fossils. Um, this one here you can see is an aquatic creature, similar to a chambered nautilus. Uh, you can see the beautiful spiral on this shell. Does it get prettier than that? This one here is the actual um, fossil. Many states use this, uh, claim this one as their uh, state fossil. This is a trilobite. This is an actual trilobite taken, you can see it's still part of rock here, but trilobite, um, some type of an arthropod, um, segmented. Uh, or segmented legs um, in sections and stuff. Part of body is sometimes segmented. And you can see that there's one here. These things, I I have some other ones that are just gigantic, three or four inches across um, in length, I mean, they're big. You see fossils everywhere. And I know many people that travel around to different spots in the world looking for fossils. I used to live by the Kankakee Uh, State Park in Illinois and I love to go there and just walking around in the rock formations you can see all sorts of fossils. Um, I used to teach in Braidwood, Illinois and that sits today on an ancient coral reef and you could go out and you can even find jellyfish of uh, fossilized jellyfish and fish and all sorts of aquatic creatures in in rock like this. Um, It's it's fascinating and you've been to museums you see dinosaurs and different layers of rock Um, different, you know, the thickness, the big dinosaurs can be like that. I mean, it's just absolutely amazing that these were living creatures. Yes, they were. Though I've heard some Bible teachers in the past who said that these these animals and plants never existed. They were a lie that Satan put in there to confuse Christians. I'm like, I don't think so. Um, so no, I believe these were living creatures at a time, um, and possibly not that long ago, in, in, in fact. They are found the fascinating thing about fossils, you can find them on every cotton-picking continent there is. Um, every continent has them. You can find them on the, the loftiest of mountains, you can find them even as they've taken cores out of the bottom of the seas and stuff, you find fossils. So they're everywhere. They're all over the place. Every continent has fossils. Even on mountain tops, there's aquatic fossils fish and things uh, and and emorites and trilobites and stuff even on mountains you find stuff like this uh, on top of mountains even so fossils are all over the place you find them now most geology books will state that fossils are the plants and animals that live millions of years ago and they also state that fossils take millions of years to develop well there's problems with that statement and also this gives us a conflict that we see with the bible here's where some people will say here's where the bible and a geology book and a science book uh, are in major conflict well they sort of are but um one of them's right one of them's wrong I'll give you a, a guess which one is correct uh, according to the bible in genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 also according to the bible in exodus chapter 20 and you can go through other page, uh, some Psalms, you can go to other books in the Old Testament, you can go, even go to the New Testament, Book of Romans, Chapter 1 and stuff. It starts talking about that the earth is not millions of years old. It describes this as not being really, really old, that the earth is not billions of years old. Um, now, I know that there are many Christians, you Ross, Francis Collins, and others who state that um, believing in the bible and stuff uh, that there's an old earth that the earth is billions of years old is not in conflict with the bible i tend to disagree with that because of uh, a lot of reasons and we'll probably do a series on that since that's such a controversial topic but um, i do believe that god created an aged earth and there's a lot of evidence for that when we have adam and eve being created. Um, notice that they have you ever read it? Uh, they're not infants. God's not changing their diapers. Um, you know, they're, they're not taking breast milk or anything. They're, they're fully formed. Uh, rivers already are described and existing, again, showing an early earth. Uh, trees and other vegetations already planted and already in fruit. Constellations, the stars are already shining. The constellations are already in set in their patterns. God created an aged earth and put man in there, but he made it created in an aged thing for, for one, proclaiming his greatness, but also for our habitation stars would be used for navigating. I mean, could you imagine Adam and Eve all of a sudden just waking up after being created? They're standing on just barren rock, and God says, well, I know you guys are gonna be hungry for a while. Um, it's gonna take a while for all that rock to turn into soil, and then we gotta have these plants develop, and um, well, I planted a bunch of seeds over here in a garden for you, but you know we're gonna have to wait a while for those trees and stuff to grow. No, he didn't do that. He put them, he formed them out of the dust of the earth, it says, and that's a lesson coming up too, he forms them out of the dust of the earth and puts them into an aged garden. God created an aged earth. See, some people are under the impression, say like, for instance, that that lead is found on the planet. Yeah, you find lead on the planet, pure lead. Uh, and some will teach that the lead at one time was uranium. Because we do know uranium, being a radioactive isotope, breaks down and forms lead. But it takes like point five billion years or something for a long period of time like that. So since there's lead, this is where they take their logic. In, in many cases like this, since there's lead here, that lead had to be uranium first. That means the earth has to be super old for that uranium to have turned into lead. Why couldn't God have created lead? Already made. Why couldn't he have created these different radioisotopes and stuff that are used for radioactive dating already there? You see, when you start thinking along the lines that uh, the earth is billions of years old, that God could not have done it, you're making two serious errors. One, you're saying God couldn't have done something. Right there, you got a serious theological error. God can do anything. Um, So that's part of it. But the other part where you say that God couldn't have done it this way is you're limiting God's power in a lot of ways and you're saying that God um, had to make stuff and then it had to proceed in its natural course. Well, God shows in the New Testament and even in the Old Testament, he doesn't always follow those rules. That's what we call miracles. Jesus, it says, healed people who even didn't even have limbs. People who were born blind, obviously some structural problem inside of the eye. Maybe the nerve, nerves were, were not formed correctly, the retina not working or whatever. People were born deaf and so God heals people. He even brings dead people back to life. Why do we try and limit God's power? Well, I'm getting into a, another lesson there, and I don't want to do that at this time. I want to stay on this for a second about the fossils. You see, some critics will state that the Bible is completely wrong because, like I say, they say that the Earth and these books and stuff will say that the Earth is billions of years old. Part of the reason they come up with that is because of fossils. And they say that fossils actually show that these animals were living billions of years ago or millions of years ago. Well, let's just stop there for a second. Let's go over a real simple little thing. How do you make a fossil? Have you ever seen a fossil made? Most people would say no. Yeah, you don't see them made very often. Thus, if we don't see it made, that means it must have taken millions of years. That's usually the logic a lot of times we use. Um, Now, there's different ways animals die and stuff. If an animal just dies like a a fish dies in a pond or something like that and it falls down to the bottom, is it going to form a fossil? Probably not. Why? There's other fish, catfish and others, and there's microorganisms, there's worms, there's um, all sorts of planarias and stuff that will come up and they'll start eating the thing and they decompose it and they take it down and they eat the thing up. Or out in the ocean, if a fish dies and falls down to the bottom of the sea, there's many sharks and octopuses and other things that'll come over and they'll scavenge the thing and it's gone too. These don't make fossils. So just something dying and laying on the side of the stream or out in, um, in a field or something, that does not make a fossil. To make a fossil, you have to have wet sediment, kill the organism, you've got to have the organism die very quickly and he's got the organism has to die so that scavengers do not tear it all apart and eat it that's why like not too long ago we had a pack of wolves just outside of our house took down a deer one night i walk out there the next day there's no deer sitting there starting to become a fossil it's been chewed on you can see the bones are all chewed up the teeth marks from um, from the the wolves and stuff are all there there's blood scattered around but the thing is it's not going to make a fossil No. An animal, to be a fossil, an organism I should just say, has to die very quickly and it has to be buried in wet sediment. Now, it just can't sit there on the surface. Because if it sits on the surface, you start running into all sorts of problems with scavengers. Also, many fossils show what we call polystrata. Polystrata, poly, many, strata, layers. Many fossils are found in numerous layers. Huge dinosaurs, matter of fact, even trees, are found in different layers of sediment. And they're fossilized. Even though they might be 60, 70 feet long, they're still fossilized. What? This thing died? This animal died down here and then still stayed erect like that for millions of years while the sediment slowly built up? I don't think so. That's illogical. Now, to make a fossil, you've got to bury the creature. After it dies quickly, you've got to bury it in wet sediment. Once it's buried in wet sediment, then the tissues break down or are composed, but the thing is they're replaced um, by minerals from the surrounding sediment. So you have to have wet sediment bury the creature or organism very quickly to make a fossil. Now, does it take millions of years? No it does not require billions of years and stuff one problem with this theory when people say that what scientist is that old that they actually saw this taking place thus it's based upon assumptions can't base true science that was dr lister dr louis pasteur and others said you can't base stuff in true science on assumptions like this you got to have testable proof nobody is four billion years old though i've had some teachers in school that i think came close to it. Um, But the thing is, you don't have people like that, so no one was eyewitnessing these things. But the fact remains that fossils are found, remember as I said, on every single continent? You can go to the Himalayas and find aquatic creatures on top of the mountains. You can go to the Rocky Mountains and you can find aquatic creatures up on top these things fossilized. How did they do this? I'll tell you how it happened. They died very quickly in a catastrophe and they were buried by wet sediment. Now, does this sound like something out of the Bible? Catastrophism? We've already talked about that in a previous lesson. Noah's flood was a master, master-sized catastrophe that was worldwide. It wasn't localized. It says it was world. And we see evidence of this. If Noah's flood took place, we should be able to see fossils everywhere all over the earth because they would have been swallowed up and killed instantly and be buried in wet sediment so that the tissues could break down um, and form minerals to replace it, just like you see right here. I have no doubt that these creatures here, this trilobite was actually living at one point but it got buried by wet sediment and it was replaced then with the minerals making this up and you usually find this in sedimentary rock. What sedimentary rock? Sediment! So, I don't believe Noah's flood was millions of years ago Because scientists have found out it doesn't take that long to form fossils. Yes, Scientists have seen fossils form. Matter of fact, there's a very famous place, I can't remember where it's at, in England, you can take an object in and have it fossilized. You pay a fee, from what I understand, I know somebody who did this, they took a a teddy bear or something, or no, it wasn't a teddy bear, it was a doll. Um, They took a doll into this cave, you pay a fee, it goes in there, they set it in wet sediment, and after a period of, like I don't know, a couple of decades, you can go back and retrieve it, and it's fossilized. It's just amazing um, how they do stuff like this. It can be covered in fossil. Also, as we've seen in a previous lesson, some fossils There's fossilized spark plugs. It doesn't take millions of years to make fossils. So, they don't need that much time to form. And if if they just sit out in a field, scavengers are going to take them away. That's why you don't see fossils forming all around your neighborhood. There's something wrong with that idea, that theory. And also, as I say, modern science is now Proved, and they've published many papers, peer-reviewed articles, not in Christian publications, but in such publications as Science, Journal of Geological Society, uh, Sedimentary Geology, and I could list many more because I have many copies of these things, where they've talked about how fossils formed of animals that have died just in recent history. So, get out of our mindset what they constantly are showing like on Discovery Channel and all these things, that it takes billions of years to make a fossil, or millions. No, it doesn't. It doesn't need that and since most fossils basically need water to form wet sediment remember now let's just think for a second doesn't that dictate that there had to be water covering the earth and doesn't that perfectly fit the biblical account doesn't it i mean a few years back scientists from nasa and others were claiming that mars has had a global flood i find this fascinating mars had a global flood. I heard it referred to just the other day as they've got some pictures, and devices up there right now taking photographs and they're talking about the global flood that Mars experienced. These same scientists say there is no signs of any global flood ever occurring on planet Earth. Now, there's some problems here. One, how many scientists have been walking around on Mars? Nobody's been there yet. Second. How many fossils have they found on mars none fossils require wet sediment do we find wet sediment fossil on this planet yeah do you find it in just a couple places no you find it worldwide yeah remove the time barrier just in your mind just get rid of this time barrier this assumption that the earth is billions of years old just move that out of there doesn't it make sense what we see in the bible in genesis account of the global flood referred to as noah doesn't that explain very easily about fossils and also have you ever noticed that certain fossils i used to have one of a fish um, eating another fish and it's fossilized one fish is inside the mouth of the other actually i've seen pictures of many of these i used to have one Um, i believe it got borrowed permanently uh, by someone but I used to have a beautiful picture of a fish actually swallowing another fish. Now, wow, that is amazing that that thing just sat there for hundreds and hundreds of years without being broken down um, and it formed finally a fossil. Doesn't it make a lot more sense this is an instantaneous death? And that's not the only one. There's other pictures that you can find if you study geological papers on this. Um, here's, uh, there's pictures of, of aquatic creatures eating a bird even we do have aquatic creatures eating birds at times there are places like this around and certain animals but the point i'm making here doesn't this suggest that death was instantaneous with wet sediment doesn't this fit the biblical account see i don't see a problem here with the bible i don't see it at all let's go to the last topic i want to talk with you just briefly here if anything is going to intrigue you and shock you this one will probably do it because this is one of the most amazing things having to do with the Bible. Oh my gosh, this is just amazing. Earthquakes. (laughs) Now, we know what earthquakes are you can't watch the news matter of fact this uh we're filming this on a wednesday this week there was a 5.6 earthquake um someplace over in asia earthquakes happen frequently they're, they make it on the news sometimes if they're really destructive sometimes just a little comment oh there was an earthquake you know and um in indonesia today uh but there were no deaths so it's no no big news you know they'll, they'll do things like that earthquakes are happening a lot and what i find most amazing about earthquakes what you read about in geology books, uh, plates of the earth shifting, and as it does this, it causes an earthquake. What I find most fascinating has to do with the lesson that Jesus taught. Now, considering how our earth, our, our world and society and stuff is going today... This, this should really just rock your socks off. I mean, you might just, you're, after listening to this, your socks might be off your feet and you might be having to look around for them. Or if you're eating your cereal, don't put sugar on it. This is going to sugarcoat your cereal. I mean, this is amazing stuff, what's, what Jesus actually talks about has to do with a lesson Jesus taught his disciples just before going to the cross and he's in Jerusalem they've been walking through the temple let me set the scene they're walking through the temple the disciples are saying wow look at that cool temple that's really neat Jesus wow really cool and it was still under construction it wouldn't be completed till 63 AD and they're talking about wow look at all the stones and the artwork wow it's really beautiful and Jesus says yeah look at it now because pretty soon not one stone's going to be left upon another I'm sure that shut them all up because they were under the impression the temple was going to be eternal. They walk across the um, Kidron Valley, and they walk up onto the Mount of Olives. They sit down, sort of sullen and quiet, and finally they ask Jesus a question. Now, here is the account. It's called the Olivet Discourse. We're just going to take a look at a couple of verses here. But um, they ask him, as verse 3 begins, we're going to be in Matthew 24, verses 3 through 8, because it pertains to earthquakes. But look what they ask him and what he answers them. Here we go this this is so exciting as he this is jesus as he sat on the mount of olives the disciples came to him privately saying tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age now that's a question jesus answered them see that no one lead you astray <laughs> For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines. Stop here for a second. Is that happening in our planet today? Continuing. And, look at the word, earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Stop there. The disciples have just asked them, What's the end times going to be? When? Here's her specific specific question What's the sign of your coming again? And what's he say? Part of his answer is there's going to be an increase in earthquakes. <laughs> this is amazing. As Jesus' return nears, the earth will experience a lot more earthquakes. Well, is that happening? Is that actually occurring? Well, Back in 2008, I decided, and I've updated this, I decided to do a little study contacting the uh, United States Geological Survey and actually some other government agencies from other countries and tried to find the history of earthquakes from about the uh, 500 BC um, until present day. And now, the thing is, you don't have to experience earthquakes all the time to know when an earthquake took place. Geologists, because an earthquake is actually a shifting in the plate, so geologists can actually see destruction around areas and they can tell, wow, there was an earthquake here, and they can often get an idea of roughly when it went. Plus, you have historians writing when earthquakes take place. So there's a lot of information to be gathered. Well, I didn't want to sit for years doing this, so I just went to scientists that work for different government agencies who do this. And I put together a little chart here. Just is showing you Now, this is not absolutely 100% exact, because we don't know, you know every little earthquake ever took place. But these are earthquakes, and I, I limited my, my search, to earthquakes that are 5.0 or above on the Richter scale. That's the device used to measure the severity of an earthquake. 5.0 and up. Um, that's a bad earthquake, usually, when it's, an, when it's a scale of 5 or up. So, using that data, I mean, there's a lot of other earthquakes that formed that were like a, f- uh, a 3 or a 4 have no idea how many of those there were, but the ones that were fives or greater. Devastating world reaction, destroying many people in many cases, thousands of people dying. I looked at what these government agencies put together and compiled the information for you, and here we are. And between 500 and 400 B.C., there was about two that we know of for sure that were five or, or greater. Um, then you move down, you see as this chart goes, you go to the 400s. I've done this by century 400 to 300. There's really was no data that really confirmed with all of them. There, there was just too much inconsistency. So I just put no data uh, 300 to 200. There was one it's definitely documented there between one uh, 200 and 100. No data. Um, the first century BC, there's I couldn't get a lot of, of data on that of, of really strong ones. but Then you get into the, um, the time of Jesus and afterwards, there were three really big ones uh, documented by different countries, different scientists from different countries that they stated. I have no idea about the deaths and stuff. Then um, you get into the, the second century, and there was like two. The third century, there's like three. Fourth century, again, conflicting data was very low. Some said none, some said two. I, I just couldn't figure it out, so I put no data. When you see no data, it means that there was conflicting on the low numbers. Some were saying none. I find that a little hard to believe, um, so I just put no data. I don't want to consider that one. But notice that it's very low numbers, single digits, um, and even less than five until you get to um, like the 10th century and stuff. Then you start running into the 9th century, 10th century, it starts getting a little bigger. Seven, but then it goes back down after 1,000, like 1,000 years ago, it goes down to three then in the 1200 um the twelve eleven hundreds i'm sorry um we have like five in the 1200s you have like six okay wow we never had six before uh or seven or something like that you get down to the 1300s there were four 1400s there were three um uh, 1500s uh we're back up to seven but look what happens when you hit the 1600s we go to 17 17 of them then look what happens in the 1800s 30 almost double And then from the 1800s, it almost doubles again. Then you get to the 20th century, the 1900s. um, Holy cow, 369? But here's the shocker. From the year 2000 to present, and I just compiled this chart just last week, I added more data to it, over 10,000 Earthquakes of 5.0 or greater have already happened in 21 years. That's more than all of the other centuries combined. Even the 20th century had more than all of them combined. You see, all, if you graph this out, holy cow, what you're going to see. It's very, very low numbers, and all of a sudden it just skyrockets up. That's what's happening. And now some people say, well, in ancient times, they, they weren't people always experiencing it. Right you're absolutely correct historians were around they did write about them but as i said geologists can often look at strata which they study all over the world and determine different earthquakes and stuff so jesus prediction of an increase in earthquakes not to mention the famines remember that was in there too that's a different topic it's extremely accurate it appears to me that we're on the brink of Jesus' return when you have over 10,000. like i said we just had one this past week 10,000 in 21 years? Now, some of these are occurring out in the oceans and stuff, and in in uninhabited areas, the earth records it, they don't even make the news. But other ones, holy cow, the numbers are just astronomical. Um, And they happen, and we see, uh, making world news tonight, how many people die with different earthquakes and stuff. I find this geology lesson here that Jesus was teaching, in the end times, you're going to see a lot more earthquakes taking place, and I'm telling you, that's what we're coming into. I believe we're coming into what's called in the Bible, the last days of the last days. I think Jesus' return is coming soon. Now, I know some, there have been many theologians been saying that for hundreds of years, but look at this data. This is absolutely amazing. So, in conclusion, if you've made it through, me, through this lesson with me, wow, you've got great stamina. But if you've made it through, just the, the final conclusion on this, geology in the Bible, you don't see scientific errors. There's no real conflict here. There's a lot of information on geology contained in the Bible, but what is found in the Bible is absolutely accurate. There is no conflict. So don't let anybody tell you that the Bible's full of science errors. Well, there definitely we've looked at some different areas of science, different subjects, we haven't seen it, and geology is no different. There's no scientific error in the Bible here. But we'll come to another lesson and um, be posting another one very soon because we have about another seven or so, uh, maybe six or seven more science lessons to go through. I hope you've enjoyed this. I hope you, uh, for one, maybe this really encouraged you to think about, wow, Jesus' return is on the brink here possibly. I I love that. Um, Did you notice too, in one of the Bible passages, it talks about this, but he says, don't be alarmed. Don't be alarmed about it. I just find it fascinating what's going on, but I love how accurate this book is. What an amazing book. So thanks for joining me. And Until I see you again, take care and God bless.
0: hope you enjoyed that episode. A big thank you is due to our donors for making this ministry possible. Once again, you can become a donor at evidenceforfaith.org and help us keep this broadcast free. You can also support us by sharing, subscribing, and leaving a review on this podcast. If you'd like to hear Michael live, you can check out our bookings calendar at evidenceforfaith.org. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org. And on that note, this is Charlotte signing off. I'll see you on the next episode.